1: Everyone, are we ever going to see the sun again? It doesn't feel that way right now, I know. It is a mucky, sloppy old mess here on the northeast Avalon. If you're out and about, please exercise caution. That sl- those slushy conditions extremely hazardous and very slippery in some areas, so please be careful. Well, it's been a very busy year for Heritage NL, which has been involved in a number of projects to record, restore, and protect the province's varied and unique heritage. Here on VOCM, on Target, it's become a bit of a holiday tradition to do a little holiday show with Executive Director of Heritage NL, folklorist and author Dave Oh, Dave, Dale, Jarvis. Hello, Dale.
0: <laughs> hello, and hello to Dave, whoever he may be. Too. Dave yeah.
1: is right across the <laughs> uh, the. With glass here looking at me going, oh, okay. Um, so hello and Merry Christmas to you, Dale.
0: <laughs> Thank you. You figured if you if you needed someone to talk about mucky, sloppy old messes with, it would be me. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you, you immediately popped to mind. Um, so before we get into some of the important work that you've been involved in over the past year and what you plan to do next year, it just doesn't seem like Christmas if the mummers are not allowed in. <laughs> but not all communities, of course, have a mummer's tradition some regions and communities have some other visiting style traditions. And I know Carbonier had its very successful Jenny's Parade on the weekend. Is another name for mummers, of course. But you've been doing some work on an old tradition in the Pooch Cove area that's seeing a bit of resurgence of late. Who are the Ribbon Fools?
0: Yeah, Ribbon Fools are a very old kind of part of mummering Christmas traditions. When we look at say, old newspaper clippings from the 1800s. Quite often people talk about the fools, um, whereas today we might use words like mummers or jannies. Um, but ribbon fools were kind of a, a, a very specific type of, of mummering or a type of costumed person. Uh, and as the name might suggest, ribbon fools, they were uh, these costumes that were covered in ribbons, often men. Um, and it, it seems to be one of these traditions that Persisted for some reason uh, longer in the Torbay, Flat Rock, Pooch Cove area than than in other places in the province, um, and so basically, in, in a in a general sense, uh, you know, someone would have a white shirt, and, and then they would collect ribbons and tie or or pin or sew all these ribbons to the shirt. So as you can imagine, on a blustery uh, Newfoundland old Christmas day, uh, these uh, these people these fools out uh, out parading uh, would make quite a sight because all these ribbons would kind of blow in the breeze and it was a very very colorful sort of tradition
1: so is it specific to that region or does it draw from other areas
0: uh, the tradition itself is quite old and it, it was uh, it was practiced or versions of it were practiced in other parts of the province. You know, we know around St. John's area that there were there were fools or be ribboned fools that that took place in mummering activities in the 1800s. Um, as far away as Fogo Island and and down on the Buren Peninsula, there were some accounts of uh, what we might think of as ribbon fools uh, as well. Uh, there was actually a tradition Tradition amongst women in the Centerville Wareham Trinity area, where women would, uh, would decorate uh, their clothing with ribbons for, for mummering season. Uh, and this would be something that the women would start quite early uh, in, in the fall of the year. Uh, and there was almost a bit of a competition to see who would have the most beautiful mummering uh, costume. Now that, though that tradition sort of died out by the, by the 1950s or 60s there.
1: So aside from the mode of dress, does it differ uh, very greatly from what we know of as uh, mummers or jannies? Uh,
0: yeah, well, you know, we think of mummers and jannies as being people that had their faces hidden, and, and sometimes the Ribbon Fools did. There are a couple old photographs from uh, from Flat Rock uh, that show the the Ribbon Fools out, and their faces aren't hidden. They they have, um, um, you know, no mask, no mask at all. The Puchkov ribbon fools did have a, a very elaborate, very tall kind of cardboard uh, mask. Um, so that's one difference. One other thing that uh, kind of set certainly the Puchkov tradition apart was that it, the ribbon fools really kind of did, Focused around Old Christmas Day. So, whereas normally in most communities, mummers or jannies might go out anywhere from, say, St. Stephen's Day, Boxing Day, right up until Old Christmas, the Fools seem to put out a, a special appearance on Old Christmas Day uh, itself. Um, And certainly that was a tradition in places like Upper Island Cove in Conception Bay. There was a a tradition there called Teak Night. And the one version of the story that I heard was that uh, when the women started to take down the Christmas decorations around Old Christmas Day, the boys would then um, collect up all these garlands and ribbons and tinsel and then make their costumes. Uh, So it would be be kind of a a tradition to end the holiday season rather than, than begin it.
1: And where does this idea of a a visiting tradition come from? I know it's quite ancient.
0: Yeah, there's all kinds of traditions all across Northern Europe where people uh, either go uh, from house to house or, or kind of parade in the streets and sometimes in really quite amazing costumes. Um, so it is kind of a year-end tradition. It's about kind of, some people argue that it might be about driving out kind of the, the spirits of the old year and welcoming in the new. Um, but uh, yeah, this idea of house visiting, you know, we, there were other kinds of traditions I uh, around house visiting that, you know, you, maybe you didn't need to necessarily put on a costume for. Uh, I, I know talking to some older residents in St. John's, uh, they would have memories of what they called having your Christmas. So if you were a child, um, you would go kind of out in your neighborhood and you'd knock on the door and you'd say, oh, Mrs., can we, can we come in and look at your tree? And, and the, the kids would be invited in and they'd sit in front of the tree and they'd say, oh, Miss, that's some nice tree. And then Miss, of course, would give them, you know, some purity service. Or some, some candy, so it was almost like um, a trick or treating sort of thing based around uh, the Christmas tree. But again, the kids weren't uh, costumed in any way. It was just part of that, you know, that that season of of paying your respects and going from house to house and, and having a chat with your neighbors.
1: It's a bit of a dark side too. I understand that sometimes you bring something with you to give someone a clout, is that correct?
0: (laughs) Yeah, and certainly the Ribbon Fools did that. And it's one of these examples of really great old uh, Newfoundland English that still kind of survives. Uh, So the Ribbon Fools, the Fools would carry what they called a swab. And a swab was a great big long stick that was kind of decorated. Sometimes it would have streamers on it. Um, Sometimes it might have... um, a pig's bladder maybe maybe inflated or filled with stones even tied to the end of the stick and you would go around and smack people with it the the teak night uh, boys would often have um kind of little whips made out of uh you know alder or something and if they found if they found someone who wasn't dressed up out on the street they'd give them a good smack uh, and that word swab uh has kind of died out in modern english except for when we talk about that that little implement that we might clean out our earwax with a cotton swab it's the same the same word and it just kind of means that stick that has something kind of on the end of it so if you can imagine a, a cotton swab you know 50 times larger than it than it is that's what uh, what some of them what some of the mummers or fools would carry around to uh, give give someone they had a grudge with over the year maybe it might hunt them down and give them a good a good wallop with it
1: and talk about uh, dark sides. Uh, I noticed that the National Film Board, and you've, you and I have spoken about this before, but the National Film Board now is out with a new film on Nellie Night. Uh, yeah. And you and I have spoken about this before, and I've seen some of the trailers for it, and it does give you chills.
0: It is spooky. So this is Jenny uh, Williams, who's from Labrador. She's made this amazing film documenting Naliuk night, another tradition that uh, really takes place around Old Christmas Day. Um, and it's a really fascinating Labrador tradition. Uh, that we, we don't see anything quite like it uh, on the island. Um, and in the northern, originally in the kind of the northern coastal communities, the Moravian communities, the, the Naliuk were these... very frightening kind of creatures dressed all in furs, oftentimes carrying a gaff or or a big stick, uh, and they would come in off the ice. Uh, they would come from, you know, the east over the frozen ocean and into the towns, and uh, and they were kind of good and bad. You know, sometimes, um, you know, children, they'd chase children around and uh, the kids would have to sing this little song, uh, you know, kind of proving that they had been good, um, and then they might get a smack or they might get chased around if they weren't good. Uh, but if they were, sometimes the, the Naliyaks were the, the people who brought gifts. Um, and Moravian kids, often they had multiple uh, times over Christmas holidays where they would get a gift. They might get a gift at the beginning of Christmas. They put up their, their stocking, uh, you know, around the beginning of Advent and then on Christmas and then on Old Christmas as well when the Naliukes came.
1: And uh, it wasn't until I saw the film, and and you just get that sense, you know, in the darkness and with the starkness of the white ice and all that sort of thing, see these figures coming in, and it's not until they get quite close that you know that they're otherworldly, they're not human, yeah. uh, could, when you see their face.
0: Yeah, they're and they're very, they are very scary, <laughs> you know, and it is something that uh, I think has kind of... Uh, it's gained maybe a bit of popularity uh, in Labrador. It was one of these traditions that maybe, you know, had started to fade a bit. But in recent uh, generations, it's really come back. And as people have moved from the coast, you, like, moved into, you know, uh, Happy Valley Goose Bay or that kind of area or or even moving onto the island. Um, You know, I've seen Naliuk uh, in St. John's, and I I understand that sometimes they, they prowl around in Happy Valley Goose Bay now, too. So, it, and it's gotten very, very popular. And and of course, like many traditions, you know, the, the Naliuit have gone modern. Um, so today, instead of chasing kids around, uh, you know, by foot, uh, they've got their snowmobiles out, and they'll and they'll race through the town on snowmobile and and uh, and chase the kids that have been naughty all year.
1: And of course, what's more fun than being terrified? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's we part like to of it, we know? like to get scared.
0: Yeah, that's part of it. And there's always been a little whiff of that around Christmas time. You know, in in kind of the North American Santa Claus tradition, there's always that little threat, you know, oh, if you weren't good, you you look out, Santa Claus is going to, is going to give you a lump of coal. You know, there's always that. There's always that chance that you might get punished at Christmas time. Um, and uh, we 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 kind of have moved away from that a little bit. But it was a very firm part of Christmas traditions all around the world that sometimes Santa would have um, a kind of a a helper of some kind, and so Santa would be kind of the the force of good, but then he would have a helper that would come around and maybe stuff you in a sack and carry you off if you'd been a bad child over the year
1: well nothing's a given right
0: no. you, gotta, you gotta you know you gotta stay in line you gotta you gotta be good or else
1: it yeah. strikes me that a, a lot of these traditions are in the northern uh, hemisphere because of course what is going on this time of year we lose a lot of the daylight it's very dark things are feeling kind of grim Things could be getting better. Does anything, uh, do these sort of things sort of mix and merge with the solstice?
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, we are at that time of year where the, you know, the days do feel longer, certainly, but we're actually kind of at that turning point where the days are actually going to start getting shorter again. It might not feel like it, <laughs> but but technically, you know, the day the daylight we get to a certain point, and then the daylight starts to to creep back in. So yeah, it is kind of this time where just when you think things can't get any any worse, well, then they actually kind of start to get start to get better. And there's all and I think that's why we have all these kind of traditions that come around this time of uh, time of year and and around New Year's. You know, we we sometimes forget that there are these old celebrations uh, that that. Happen around New Year's time too New Year's was a time when you know many community would ha- many communities would have um, you know they would have the big dance and the soup supper you know maybe at the at the local lodge or whatnot they'd have a big dance and soup supper um, or people would be out but you know firing off their guns on on, on New Year's Eve uh, and that's again part of a very old uh, old tradition of kind of doing away with the old year and, and welcoming in the new one
1: do we have any specific solstice type traditions?
0: I, I that's a good question. Uh, I think because religion was so important uh, in in the history of, of Newfoundland and Labrador, a lot of our traditions have kind of been filtered through the church, you know. Um, but I think there was a, probably a reason why um, why the ancient church, you know, kind of uh, adopted this time of year for some of those Christian traditions in, in, an, in an attempt, maybe, to kind of push some of those older pagan traditions out. Uh, out of the way um, and kind of overwrite what what people had been doing around this time of the year.
1: It wouldn't be Christmas if we didn't talk about food. And I want to ask you a little bit about that when we come back after the break. Our guest today on On Target, Executive Director of Heritage NL, folklorist and author Dale Jarvis will be back right after this.
0: Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at one on your VOCM
1: our guest today on on target is executive director of heritage nl dale jarvis and dale you and i often um discuss food at this time of year and uh, <laughs> of any time of year really um and christmas puddings of course a well-known newfoundland tradition fig duff boiled duff baked pudding boiled pudding dark pudding light pudding and blood pudding yes and you've done some work on that
0: yeah, you know, we you listed off all those delicious puddings, and then kind of added in blood pudding at the end, which I, which to be honest, I think is a delicious kind of pudding, um, but it we don't often think of that necessarily as being a Christmas time treat. But it, it really, it really was. I, I, yesterday, I had the, I had the really g- great afternoon. I, I got to spend some time out in Clark's Beach with Mrs. Moores uh, at uh, at Collingwood Dance, who is 107 years old. And of course, I wanted to talk to her about Christmas traditions and, and things that she remembered uh, growing up. Um, and the one thing she said, you know, at Christmas time, uh, we we always had a pig. She, her father was the Marconi uh, operator at Point Amore Lighthouse up on the Straits of Labrador. And so they would get their supplies. They would get two big uh, uh, shipments of supplies, kind of one in the spring and then one in the in the fall of the year. And in the spring, the one thing they would always get was a piglet, and, uh, and then they would raise the pig throughout the year. And then it was always at Christmas that they would get, uh, that the pig, the, the pig would then fattened up, be butchered in time for Christmas. So they would always have fresh pork for Christmas. And I asked her about, uh, you know, if they made blood puddings, and she turned up her nose and, <laughs> and said, no, they never made blood pudding. Um, but earlier this year, we were out in, uh, in Tilting on, on Fogo Island, which is a great place for anyone who has an interest in old tradition. Uh, and we spent a day, uh, myself and two of my colleagues from Heritage and we spent an afternoon with uh, uh, Christine Dwyer, who's a great quilter, sewer. Uh, she makes wedding cakes and you name it. She's a great, uh, great hand at all kinds of things. But we spent an afternoon with her making blood pudding. Um, and she said that, yeah, this was very much a, a Christmas tradition on Fogo Island. She, she grew up in Jobat's Arm, uh, and, and she remembered that same thing. You know, that families would raise at least one pig, um, and then the, the pig would be butchered sometime, you know, in, in the end of the year, and, and they would save the blood and make blood pudding. And, and she says that even today she has family that lives away, um, and she's responsible for making up the blood pudding and, and sticking it in the mail and sending it off so people can have that, uh, that traditional Newfoundland blood pudding at, uh, at Christmas time.
1: I used to love it as a child. Uh, Mom used to fry it up in the pan and I, oh my goodness, I, I loved it until I got a little older and started to figure it all out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's not just a name. Uh, and that kind of turned me for a little while, but uh, I do get a craving for it every now and again, I must yeah. say.
0: same thing. I, re- I remember doing an interview once with a, a woman from, from Belle Island and her father had been a butcher and, uh, and she was saying, oh, she's like, you know, I used to love blood pudding and I, I love would love it. And then one year, um, she she got the behind-the-scenes look <laughs> at where the blood pudding came from, and then she said she never, ever, ever ate it again after that. Um, but it's still really popular, and I was kind of surprised out on out on, uh, Fogo Island in, in Hurley's store in, in Tilting. Uh, it's still such a popular thing there at Christmas that Hurley's brings in um, containers of blood, so you can go to the corner store and, and get your little container of blood. You don't need a terrible lot to make your your blood pudding. It's just kind of in there as uh, color and uh, I guess maybe to stick everything together, but it's mostly, you know, kind of bread and salt pork and onions and, and some of those Christmas spices like allspice and, and cloves, those kinds of things. Um, so we we were, we were hung out with Christine. She made us some, some blood pudding and we're right in the process now of doing up a little video uh, and we're going to hopefully have that out before Christmas uh, and, and that'll be on the Heritage NL Facebook page and on our very of social media so people can get um, the inside look on how blood pudding is made on uh, traditionally on Fogo Island.
1: Oh, that's amazing and we, of course we have a lot of pudding traditions here because it's relatively easy to make. You throw it all in yeah. and uh, either you boil it or you bake it.
0: Yeah, and I think you know it was one of these things. You know, it was it was a way to ensure that nothing really went to waste. You know, like uh, so if you had uh, you know old bread, you know, you wouldn't throw that out. You'd you'd save it, dry it out, make breadcrumbs out of it, and make various kinds of things, various types of puddings or sweet puddings or uh, or sausage or of some kind. You know, something that would use up those those breadcrumbs. Um, and and the same thing with with the blood itself. You know, if you went through the the trouble of raising an animal why were you going to throw away this stuff that was perfectly perfectly usable it was a, it was a really good example of how Newfoundlanders and, and Labradorians used used everything they could and and reused and recycled uh, materials that today maybe we would just you know kind of throw away you know oh we don't need that old crust of bread we can get a new a new loaf of bread or, or or we don't even we don't even know where our, our, our meat comes from anymore you know we just go to the store and buy it and we never see we never see the blood or the or the other bit of the animal that uh, that sometimes get used for for things like sausages and all kinds of delicious things that we we, we don't think too much about what but what's inside them.
1: Oh, the waste of affluence! (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, we made use of an awful lot of things because we had to. Uh, Brin bags, of course, (laughs) had all kinds of purposes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Things got reused. You know, and we, I think that that's um, you know, it's something that I think we're we're starting to have to think more about. You know, often, you know, we when we think about how we're going to move forward in this, you know, this kind of new world that we're living in, um, you know, uh, when we look at things like like, you know, climate change and globalization and, and food security, you know, some of these older traditions and older skills about really fully utilizing what we have, I think are going to become increasingly more important.
1: Absolutely. Our guest today is Executive Director of Heritage NL, folklorist and author Dale Jarvis, and I want to ask you about some of the work you've been doing this past year when we come back right after this.
0: Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM.
1: Our guest today is Executive Director of Heritage NL, and Dale Jarvis. Uh, Heritage NL did some amazing work on an old graveyard in Blackhead in Conception Bay North Uh, some of those headstones go back a very long time and have a variety of styles tell us a little bit about the work there
0: yeah. So, if you, some people may be familiar with this uh, cemetery there in in Blackhead because it is quite it is quite historic. It is believed to be the first Methodist cemetery in in North America, or one one of the oldest Methodist cemeteries in North America, um, and it has been you know actually very well preserved by the by the local community. They've done a great job in in maintaining that uh, that space, uh, but it is one of the states that the town um, and local kind of heritage enthusiasts have wanted to do some work uh, around to ensure that that space is uh, preserved, you know, moving forward. So so we uh, we went out and gave them some advice on, on what to do, and, and I guess sometimes more importantly, what not to do when it comes to old uh, headstones. Um, we did a cemetery cleaning, uh, you know, kind of introduction uh, with them out there. Uh, and one of the things that becomes kind of obvious when you look at the cemetery is that there are there are clusters of old stones, and then there are great big areas where there's nothing. You know, very nicely kind of maintained uh, lawn, uh, but uh, a lot of missing headstones. A, a lot of a lot of people couldn't have afforded to you know in those days have a headstone imported uh, from somewhere, uh, and so people had wooden crosses or just simple um, field stones, rough stones that they would have, and a lot of those have been lost. Over the years, so one of our researchers uh, here at Heritage Annelle, Juliette Lanfair, she's been working combing through old records, um, and she's done up this remarkable database of uh, of people who were buried in the cemetery. And I think she's up to about a thousand uh, a thousand people documented now who were buried uh, in that. So, if you had family whose roots were kind of in that uh, in that you know, Adams Cove, uh, Broad Cove, Blackhead area, especially people who had a Methodist United Church background, uh, there, there is a very good chance that some of your ancestors' names might be in that research that Juliet has been, been pulling together. And that's, we make that all uh, freely available. Uh, one of the neat things is she's also been researching uh, using the old, um, I guess, records of deaths for the province and tracking th- things like um, uh, often, you know, what, what were the causes of death? You know, in the in the 1800s when these people were being buried, um, and you know some of the you know some of the things there today, you know uh, you know are, are easily kind of preventable uh, diseases and whatnot. But at the time, were quite quite deadly. Um, very high infant mortality as well. You know, there's hardly a family that wasn't touched uh, by that kind of loss in some way. So we're we're helping the community hopefully to uh, think about preserving the space um, but also thinking about okay how do we better document you know who is there and um, and I think there's a lot of people who uh, who are really interested these days in family history and genealogy Um, and so helping to get those records out there so people can track some of their uh, their family history I think is really important.
1: And I'm going to get calls so how can people access that database?
0: Yes uh, the easiest place is to find uh, our blog um, and you can go, it's I-C-H, I-C-H for intangible cultural heritage, I-C-H blog dot C-A. Um, and, uh, and you can find it there or, or just find Heritage NL on Facebook and send us a message and we'd be happy to, to send you the link. Um, and the spreadsheet's there online and, and anyone can kind of look at it and, and figure out uh, who, their, who their relatives may have been, maybe their cause of death, uh, who their, who their uh, relations are. It's really fascinating when we look at old cemetery records like this, because, uh, you know, when we, when we look at the headstones, um, it's almost like, you know, kind of to uh, use that iceberg analogy, you know, what you see on the surface is only a small portion of what is actually under, underneath. You know, there might only be a couple hundred headstones, but there's a thousand people buried in that cemetery. Not, a, not all of them would have had a headstone.
1: Extraordinary. That's uh, such a huge number of people in that plot For yeah area that, you know, for many years was uh, fairly um, sparsely populated, if you will, um, you know, for very many years. Um, And I do have some ancestors in that plot, so I'll be checking that out very closely. Um, But what do we know about some of the iconography used in in these uh, um, headstones? Because some of them are quite... You know, elaborate
0: yeah. some of the headstones are quite uh, quite large you know we, we, we really didn't have a, a headstone industry uh, in in Newfoundland until about the 1840s um, when we started to actually have stone carvers who who were here on in the island of Newfoundland um, making making headstones and even then we were still importing the stone itself like once we once we started to get those marble uh, the beautiful white marble headstones all that marble was imported mo- most of it from vermont uh, area coming up from from the united states um uh, and so some of the, the iconography changes over time. You know, we see uh, by the kind of Victorian period when we get those marble headstones, you know, we have a lot of motifs that uh, anyone who, who visits historic cemeteries will recognize. My, one of my favorite are the, the clasped hands. You know, you'll see these, these two hands kind of reaching across the top of the stone um, uh, as if they're shaking hands or, or holding hands. Um, and quite often when you look at those, um, look at this is a, a your homework now for the next time you're out in a historic cemetery look at the cuffs uh, on their sleeves because you'll often see that one of them um, has kind of a frilly dainty sort of lacy cuff and then the other one will have a much more um, kind of sensible uh, buttoned up uh, cuff You know, so there will be one that is obviously a female hand and one that is a male hand uh, and quite often those are on the headstones of uh, you know, of family members, where, where someone in the family has, has gone on before another, uh, and this is said to represent, you know, uh, families being rejoined uh, on the other side, which I think is a really nice kind of romantic way of thinking about some of these uh, uh, images that we see on headstones.
1: It was a long time before I was able to figure out there's a, a weird little shape that shows up on some headstones that I couldn't quite interpret. Um, and when I started doing a little work myself, I realized that it's a, a stylized type of crown. Okay. Um, yep. And uh, so some of them look like a crown and some of them will look more like... Weird leaves, but they have these little jewels in them. So mm, it it's yeah. it it took me a long time, and of course, searching online, you get a lot of stuff out of the United States and that sort of thing. So I didn't quite, but it took a long time for me to figure that out.
0: Yeah, the other thing that you'll often see in in headstones, especially in in Protestant uh, cemeteries, uh, you'll see quite often sort of mysterious symbols on on the headstones uh, of men, um, and often these refer Back to what kind of fraternal organization they were in. So, in that in that Blackhead Cemetery, for example, you'll see iconography that would have been used uh, to indicate that the man was a member of the Loyal Orange Lodge, or um, quite often, you know, a member of the Society of United Fishermen. So, if you see a little a little triangle with a Maltese cross in the middle of it, that that was an S.U.F. symbol. Uh, or if you see kind of an arch, or or sometimes Just out of context, if you're not familiar with it, it seems kind of strange, Um, a little two and a half inscribed in the stone. And that's, again, an orange symbol indicating that they were a member of the Loyal Orange Lodge
1: or a mason and i want to talk to you a little bit about the masonic temple in twillingate when we come yep. back after the break our guest today on on target is dale jarvis he is a folklorist and author and executive director of heritage nl we'll be back right after this
0: take a break join us weekdays from 12 30 to 1
1: p.m as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now it's all on the table during your vocm lunch break our guest today is executive director of heritage nl folklorist and author dale jarvis and you've been involved in in a restoration and oral history project at the uh, Masonic Temple in Twillingate. What have you been doing there?
0: Yeah, so the the Twillingate Masonic Temple, if you've ever been into Twillingate and kind of driving from, you know, kind of the southern, the south. Island over to the North Island in, in Twillingate, you'll see the Masonic Temple over there over to your, over to your left. Beautiful, great, big, imposing building, um, has an incredible uh, in, interior. Just before the break, we were talking about some of those insignia that you will see sometimes on, on headstones. And certainly, um, you know, the, the, the Masonic Compass and Square is one of those things. And when you, when you drive past the Masonic Temple, you can look up and see this great uh, eye of the great architect there looking down at you from the top of the building. Um, so they are a building that has been designated by by Heritage NL uh, as a registered heritage structure and they're doing some work on, um, on preserving the, the structure, the outside of the building. We've, we've given them a grant to help them out, you know, do some uh, exterior repairs and painting. They've got some of the building done and they'll be doing more in the spring. Um, but they also are interested in preserving uh, some of the stories and and knowledge around that building. And so one of the things that we went out and helped them out with was a a little bit of a workshop around how to do oral histories and how to interview their their members. A lot of their lodge members are are kind of getting up there in years, um, and uh, so they want to do some interviews. They also have an incredible uh, amount of historic material, old photographs and uh, documents and records uh, that uh, really give an interesting, interesting View of uh, you know who was who was doing what in in Twillingate, uh, going back over a hundred years, uh, and and the lodge out there they seem really interested in in preserving that kind of information, um, and uh, and having it be you know documented and digitized so that it's preserved for future generations. So that's it's kind of been an exciting an exciting project. Uh, we like those projects where uh, the property owners are are interested in the building certainly but also in, in the stories that, the, that that building has and the skills that go along, uh, along with that property.
1: Right, and as you alluded to, it, 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 can, it can go away so quickly. All oh, yeah. you need is one or two people pass on and it's gone.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And people have, you know, such great, uh, great uh, stories and memories. And, you know, one of the things that we talked about when we were uh, when we were working with the the members of the lodge there, uh, you know, people have lots of knowledge, just not, not just stories and interesting tales about, you know, the history, but you know, uh, one of the members had been a member for a long, a very long time. And we said, you know, like, w- what do you know about the building? Like, where, where has the building had have had changes over the years? You know, what kind of problems did they, did previous Masons uh, have? And how did you solve those problems? You know, which part of the building leaked badly? Uh, you know, just so that moving forward, you know, uh, the next generation can kind of think, okay, we've had problems there in the past. We need to kind of keep an eye on that corner or where that, or where that, uh, that flashing is around that particular piece of the eave. The um, so, some, so sometimes those, uh, those, that knowledge about our older buildings is really important uh, for maintaining them into the future.
1: Yeah, it serves a, uh, also a very practical purpose, if you will. Yeah. Um, its fate, I know, was uncertain for a time, but Grand Falls House has uh, been turned over to the town, and you had a recent visit there, I understand. What's yeah. going on?
0: well uh, <laughs> that that 's the million dollar question i think <laughs> I think that everyone is asking around Grand Falls house, so Grand Falls house was the big um, the the big uh, kind of company manager's house, very imposing uh, kind of Tudor revival style, style kind of built like an English manor house if you 're from Grand Falls, Windsor, you know the property it 's hidden behind this beautiful grove of uh, birch trees, uh, and it was always a building that Really wasn't open to the public. You know, all, all the fancy folk uh, got to go there, but it wasn't really the spot where you know people who were the the the, the mill workers got to go and hang out. Um, it is a remarkable building. I had never been inside, uh, so they have uh, applied to Heritage NL for heritage designation, um, and they're they're looking about uh, figuring out what they're going to do with the building next. But quite quite remarkable. Uh, uh, Quite remarkable property. Uh, walking through it, it gets. I said to someone later, it's kind of a cross between Government House and the Glenmill Inn. You know, it's one of these grand, grand houses with umpteen bedrooms and you know five chimneys and multiple fireplaces and lots of beautiful woodwork. It, it really is the, a style or type of building that we we don't see a lot of uh, in the province. Um, and because of the size of it uh, and its age, you know, that comes with some challenges around, you know, just maintenance costs and operating costs, you know, just to heat a property like that is incredibly, incredibly expensive. Um, But I think there was kind of, uh, there was some uncertainty around what would happen with that, uh, with that property. Uh, It was, you know, was owned by the company and then expropriated uh, by the province as part of the expropriation of land around the mill. Um, And it was kind of mothballed uh, for a while. And and you can't keep those buildings empty forever. You know, they're, they're ha- buildings need to be lived in and used in some way for them to continue on uh, in a healthy way, a way that's healthy for the building. So there's a local uh, uh, foundation out there that's been set up, um, and they're they're moving forward and trying to figure out, okay, now that we have this building, how do we ensure that we uh, are able to maintain it and, and make sure that it has a life, you know, uh, for the future of, of the community. And, and I really hope that at some point it does kind of get opened up so that people really can get inside and see it for many people for the first time because it is probably one of the most um, fabulous um, ornate houses that I've been in in the province.
1: So you describe the woodwork and the fir- the fireplaces and the bedrooms and that but d- does it contain any artifacts, uh, paintings, furniture, that kind of thing?
0: Yeah there's still a lot of material uh, in there. I know uh, a number of years ago the, the rooms had gone out and done an inventory of all the material that was in the building. So there, there was a lot of artwork and, you know, the, the, the beds are there, the, you know, the original, some of the original furniture, the the building has gone through some changes over the years, but really, yes, there are, there are some, uh, some, uh, you know, valuable pieces there probably. And, and I think that that's something that again, you know, the, uh, that's another reason why you want someone uh, in these properties, the, the, there was, uh, I guess, a manager's house uh, on the same grounds that was lost to a fire uh, a number not that long ago, a number of years ago, before the pandemic. Um, and when buildings are vacant, that's that's the thing we have to worry about that um, that these buildings will get damaged in in some way. Um, so yeah, I think the I think the committee, the local committee, is really aware of that and really interested in figuring out, you know, how do we tell this the story of this incredible place and and make sure that. It is used and protected moving forward.
1: Yes, and we've seen too many heritage properties lost in that manner in we recent have. years. We um, have. So, what's ahead now in 2023? What's on your plate?
0: Well, 2023. One of the big projects that we're going to be doing in the new year is uh, around the Humber Valley. We, we we're going to be doing a, a a project in partnership with Memorial University um, and uh, Halibut uh, out on the west coast, uh, and and we're looking at all those communities, kind of from Steady Brook area all the way along the Humber uh, River, all the way up to uh, past past Deer Lake and into Reedville and Cormac and Howley, um, and looking at you know what are the traditional skills in, in the area? What can people What can people do? What kind of knowledge do people have? And so we've got a list of oh gosh I don't even know how many communities there are, but we're going to be going out to all of them and and trying to build uh, I guess kind of a, a sense of you. You know, who knows how to do what out there? We've done some work over the past several years with the Pasadena Heritage Society, and they've been fantastic at running workshops on things like uh, bread making and jam making. They did a moose bottling uh, workshop, which, <laughs> again, bringing it back to food, you know, is a great way of preserving some of these skills. Um, and and so the goal of this project is just kind of to identify who those people are in the communities that, uh, that have traditional skills and are doing some of these traditional things making blood pudding for example or who are the good carvers or snowshoe makers or whatever whatever the skills uh, happen to be uh, we'll be going out with some of our researchers and and some people with uh halibu and with memorial i'm uh, just kind of making a list of all these things that exist uh, in the humber valley
1: cool any other areas of the province you've got your eyes on
0: um we, we kind of feel we've uh, I, don't, I won't say neglected but a, a lot of the heritage work that we've done certainly over the last couple of years with COVID has really focused on eastern Newfoundland um, and so we would like to remedy that a bit and do some more work in Central and in, uh, and on the West Coast and in Labrador we just had one of our researchers was just up on the Straits uh, with um, uh, 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 we're working with the Labrador Artist Co-op uh, there were a number of weaving looms that had been up there that were, I think, were introduced by the Women's Institute or brought up by the Women's Institute at one point, and they've kind of sat there unused. Uh, so one of our researchers and a local weaver, uh, Jessica McDonald, went up and helped the, the the craft co-op up there set up those looms, um, and uh, Jessica was giving some instruction on on getting them up and running again. So, you know, we're hopefully doing. Some some more work around that, some more work around uh, around traditional skills. Um, that's something that we're really, really uh, passionate uh, about here. So yeah, k- stay tuned for, for more more work in Central, Western, and, and hopefully in Labrador as well.
1: You've done a lot of great work in the schools and with students. Do you have a poster contest coming up, I understand?
0: We do have a poster contest. This is, I gosh, I don't even know what year this is for a poster contest. But every year, uh, we invite kids all across the, the province to submit a uh, a poster that they can design of a historic place in their community. And there are prizes both for uh, the individual students. We usually have a a kind of a a ceremony around Heritage Day in February. Um, But there's also a prize for the school of the the winning uh, posters as well. And so teachers, educators, parents, um, students who are interested in in art, uh, they can go to Heritage NL Dot .ca and find all the information there about how to enter our poster contest.
1: Have you got another book in you? <laughs>
0: I always have another book in me. I'm I'm uh, outside of all my heritage work. I'm I'm working on uh, I'm working on a book right now around haunted houses. Um, so yes, if if you live in a haunted house, uh, track me down because I'd love to know. I'd love to know a little bit about what's going on um, under your under your roof uh, and within your walls. I'd love to hear your your creepy stories about haunted houses.
1: Do you still get a lot of stories about that?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been one of the things that uh, just kind of for my own personal fun, I've been, I've been putting out little stories on social media, on TikTok and, and Instagram and whatnot. Um, and the great thing is that there's all, the, you know, there's all this, these, this newer generation, these young people who are very socially, um, very active in social media. And, and they're, they're telling me stories. You know, they're telling me stories about local legends and, oh, I know of a story about this, uh, this place. Uh, so, there really is an interest i think in in local folklore and and, um, and I love you know learning new stories. I had put out something about Oh gosh, about one of the buildings on the corner the corner in St. Johns and it's a building that older people in St. Johns will remember as Victoria Station, the corner at the uh, the building at the corner of Cathedral Street and Duckworth Street. Beautiful big uh, duplex that was built as a doctor's surgery and residence. Lots of great ghost stories about that and since I've put that out, uh, people have been contacting me with their own uh, creepy sort of experiences they've had in that that particular building. So, yeah, there's Always more stories to learn, and I'm and I'm always open to, to having people share them with me.
1: Ooh, looking forward to that one. I'm sure we'll talk about more about that when you're getting closer to publishing. Uh, Dale Jarvis, a, a pleasure as always. Merry Christmas to you. Happy Merry New Chris. Year, and uh, don't get hit with a swab.
0: <laughs> I'll do my best. Thanks, Linda. Uh,
1: thanks so much. Bye bye. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening, everyone.